0: This is the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. As a fund manager and investment strategist for major institutions, George Cooper had a front-row seat at the financial meltdown that nearly plunged the world into catastrophe a few years ago. He became convinced that economics is a broken science. There are many schools of thought, and they all contradict each other. George figured that we had seen this kind of thing before, in various scientific fields, which had all undergone what we sometimes call Copernican revolutions. He came to the conclusion that economics was ripe for a paradigm shift, and the aim of his new book is to provide that. Tim went to meet George at his home in Greenwich.
1: This is the Books Podcast with Tim Hagen. I'm talking to Dr. George Cooper, whose book, whose new book, is Money, Blood and Revolution. Um, It's a modest ambition you've got, George. You want to revolutionise the science of economics uh, in one fell swoop.
0: Um, Yes, it is. It's a stretch assignment, yes.
1: Um you have I mean it, it's broad brush stuff but and which sounds terribly rude of me but it, it's actually not is it because you, you think that uh, broad brush is is the point is what is needed at this at uh, this juncture
0: yes um i mean what i'm trying to do is is point out that we've got uh, we've got a situation in economics where the field has broken down into lots of effectively tribal groups They're all arguing with each other. They've all got different ideas. None of the ideas appear to be compatible. Um, And uh, the dialogue's broken down. So what I'm trying to do with this book is to give them a new paradigm, a new framework, where we can cherry-pick the best ideas from each different tribe, if you like, and get them to work together constructively.
1: And you have you have a background theory to this. It's also, it's the uh, you've refer back to Thomas Kuhn, yes, and his theory of scientific revolutions. And 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 what you're really getting at is this 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 theory of, of uh, a proliferating complexity of of explanations, which which you you suggest from Kuhn is always a sign that a, a science has has lost its way and has failed to to uh, find a. a, a a coherent explanation.
0: Yes, it, in the past, whenever you see um, whenever you see a field starting to offer multiple different explanations for all sorts of different phenomena um, and not really thinking about whether they're compatible with each other, that's when you get that that's the symptoms that the science is in crisis. Um, I wrote a a passage in there about what was going on prior to Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. It's
1: going to come to that, because this all sounds a bit dry so far, yeah. and it's not at all. And part of the reason it isn't is that you relate it to, to well, you've taken three uh, examples of scientific revolutions, of uh, four. Four, yeah. Four, thank you. Yeah. for <laughs> sharing that <laughs> off, of, of uh, uh, Sort of Copernican revolutions. Yes. And I want you to refer back to those, because they're going to be important when we talk about, yes. uh, about your, your theory of, uh, of um, circulation later on.
0: Mm-hmm. um yes yeah, so the the four different theories uh, that i I discuss is first the very famous one Copernicus um, and his revolution when he worked out that actually the the earth was moving around the sun and not the other way around um turned out to be right he was right yes um and the point I made with that um explanation was that actually his theory um it wasn't mathematically better than the previous theories. It wasn't. Um, it didn't help predict the movement of the stars better. All it did was provide what Kuhn called conceptual efficiency. It let people think more clearly about what they were looking at.
1: It was a change of perspective. A change it it of was pers- like looking at it completely
0: from another direction. Yes, and that's what I'm trying to do with the circulatory theory in economics. Now, the, So the next one, um, which is the one I draw on quite a lot... Is William Harvey's theory of blood circulation. Um, and that one's fascinating, actually, because that one I think is very um, it's very easy to draw some lovely analogies between how he fixed the science of anatomy and how we can fix the science of economics. Um, and then from then from there I go on to um, Darwin's theory uh, of evolution. And I use I use Darwin in two ways. One as a demonstration of how science progresses. But then the other way I bring Darwin in is to, uh, to use what he um, discovered, which is competition, if you like, in, in the animal kingdom, and then say, well, let's put competition into economics rather than maximization and there's a subtle difference between the two maybe we'll get to that we, later.
1: we will come back yeah. to that because it's absolutely crucial to, to it, the it thesis is to it's very
0: it's very important and then the the last one i use um the last science i talk about is alfred wegener's um description of continental drift and that one's interesting because again that that did in in the early part of the last century um, that fractured into lots of different schools of thought as well because geologists just couldn't explain mountains, they couldn't explain oceans, they couldn't explain uh, volcanoes or anything with with their theory. And they all had different theories for little bits of it. He put the whole thing together and again, strangely, uh, required circulation in, in the theory to, to fix it. So that was a... a geology was actually... Um, Again, quite a good analogy for, for economics.
1: Now, you write um, very entertainingly about all, all of um, all of those things, and th- that's important because it is it is a lively book. It is not it is not mm-hmm. a dry as dust uh, tome, isn't this one? Um, it 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 sort of begs a question, though. If you can use these these handful of uh, scientific revolutions as uh, uh, um, exa- as, as, as uh, ways of showing.
0: What's templates. wrong with, uh,
1: yeah. of, with economics? Is it fair to say that economics is a science? And that, that's, that's, I think, the first question that anybody's going to want to pick up with this.
0: Question. I would say right now, no, it's not. Um, but then um, I, I make a, a brief comment about this at the beginning of the book. If you were looking at what we call astronomy today, pre-Copernicus, you wouldn't call that a science either. It was astrology. Similarly, uh, the different theories about evolution that wasn't scientific before Darwin. So, right now, economics is not a science. It's a it's a sort of chaotic mix of a few good ideas and a lot of a lot of confusion. What I'm saying with this book, which I think is, um, it's controversial to pretty much everybody, and that is, I'm saying we could turn it into a science. Now, the economists don't like it because they think it's already a science, and most of the laymen don't think it's possible because they look at economics and think that's just too chaotic. It could never be a science.
1: Well, we'll come on to the question of uh, your your theory of of, uh, circulation in a moment when we've just dealt with the crucial, and I have to say absolutely uh, uh, a central uh, matter of Star Trek, and how that, because it, I know, which yes. sounds funny, but it it, it really does pin mm. down the this question of scientific revolutions as far as you're concerned. And I loved, I love the way you you make it clear that only classic Star Trek will work oh, with yes. these kinds of, of analogies.
0: Yes, the the new Star Trek uh, films just don't work. It's got to be, it's got to be the um, the original William the, Shatner stuff. I'm afraid Captain
1: Kirk and it's Mr. Spock. Very, so tell very me about them quickly. And then well, well the
0: the importance of that is. Um, the original Star Trek stories are all really about two different personalities there's there's Spock who is analytical and completely rational and then there's Captain Kirk who's sort of creative and intuitive and a big part of what Thomas Kuhn said in his um, in his theory of scientific revolutions was that we have convinced ourselves that science progresses in the way that Spock works, so everything is rational and deductive. But we find that that can lead us um, effectively down a cul-de-sac, can lead us to a place where the science gets stuck. And when you're stuck, that's when you need the Captain Kirk character. That's when you need somebody imaginative. That can... And this is you, because actually you're not an economist. You, you, you've, you've worked
1: very much in finance and, and in, the, in the money world. But you're not an economy. You're Captain Kirk in this.
0: Um, that's what I'm trying to be. Yes, I'm. I'm playing the Captain Kirk role, trying to find the imaginative solution. Um, and I'm. I'm not an economist. I'm. I've worked in finance, uh, fund manager, and as a as a strategist at some of the big banks. But by training, I'm actually a physicist. So that's where I, I get the analogies with the science versus economics in there. But interestingly. Um, one of the things that comes out in Kuhn's analysis of scientific revolutions is he shows that um, you very rarely, in fact, you never get the breakthroughs, the imaginative breakthroughs from the professionals, from the leaders <laughs> of the field. Um, and, you know, for example, the, the, best, um, the best example is Alfred Wagner with the discovery of continental drift. He was actually an atmospheric scientist. He was an atmospheric physicist. And he sort of looked in on geology and went, no, that can't work, uh, and solved the problem sort of in passing. Uh, similarly, Copernicus, he was, he was working up in northern Poland. He wasn't in the mainstream of, uh, of astronomy at all at the time. That was going on in Italy. So um, Kuhn said you need, you need outsiders, people that are interested in the field, obviously, but people who are not steeped in, in the body of knowledge, as it is.
1: Let's start working towards um, uh, an understanding, a new understanding of economics. What went right three hundred years ago that caused the enormous expansion of productivity and and of, uh, of wealth, and 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 you know what we now think of as the norm, which for most of human history has not been.
0: Okay. Well, I I think this is actually crucial. It's crucial to the the narrative of the book, and it's crucial to understanding how economies work. Um, And it comes back to Darwin. Um, What I say is, if we follow Darwin's logic, then humans are competitors. We are, what worries us is our position in the social order. We want to be better than our neighbors. We want to do better than our work colleagues, if you like. Now that leads to an interesting um, phenomenon, I think, in uh, human society, which is that once you've got to the top of society, once you're the ruling elite, if you like, there's nobody above you to compete with. You become more worried about making sure that those beneath you don't catch up with you.
1: And this contradicts the neoclassical assumption that what we're trying to do is maximize our wealth, our utility, rather than that, it's compete for. And that's, that's really what you're yes,
0: saying. Yes, ab- Absolutely. And um, the analogy I I use a few times in the book is it's the difference between um, if you're watching runners race, uh, if runners are trying to run faster than each other versus if they're just trying to run as fast as they possibly can. It's a very subtle difference, but it leads to different, okay. different behaviours.
1: How does that lead to a different uh, behaviour? And how, do, how does that show up in what you, you always describe it as a, a pyramid, don't you? Because there okay. is. There's always a lot more people at the bottom of the uh, social order than at the top. So you've got a pyramid. What does it do within that pyramid?
0: Well, what it, what it means, if I come back to it, it means that when you're at the top of the pyramid, your incentives are actually to keep the rest of the pyramid in place. You don't want them to be able to compete with you. And that's how uh, this competitive spirit can lead to a very stagnant economy, or a feudal economy, which is what I describe in the book. So what I'm saying, a good part of the the book, is about explaining why uh, the Darwinian competitive instinct leads naturally to a stagnant feudal society. And this is very, very um, contradictory to mainstream economic thinking.
1: But okay, press on. What's the what's the reverse of that? Of that. Okay. Uh,
0: okay of so so what? Because there's a
1: circulation. Yes. The
0: the, this, this is the point. So so essentially, the message is: through most of human history, we had a natural economic system, which was a feudal system, and then we had. Uh, A couple of, well, we had three quite unusual social revolutions. We had a revolution in England, or actually a pair of revolutions, which the the last one was um, what's known as the Glorious Revolution. Uh, Then we had a revolution in America, and then we had a revolution in France. And all of those revolutions did something that hadn't happened before. They created a democratic control system. So they, uh, as I put it, they decapitated the social pyramid and they put in, it wasn't a great democracy to start with, but it was the start of democracy. And this had a few different effects. It broke down the rigid social structure that kept the masses in place, but it also started to create a much bigger government. And the government needed money, and the only place they could get the money from was to tax the rich. So what started to happen was that you introduced progressive taxation. So you started, the government started taxing those at the top of the social pyramid and spending money to do things, to build roads, to um, you know, build infrastructure and things like that, which employed people at the bottom of the pyramid. So we then had a situation where, if you like, the the original capitalist system, the trade system was pushing money up to the top of the pyramid and then this new government system was then taking some of that money and putting it back into the bottom
1: and there you've got your circulation which is which you which is really the, the essence of, of, of your uh, theory
0: yes now and if that if I can bring that back now to Thomas Kuhn's theory because um, what Thomas Kuhn said and actually if, if you dig into a lot of uh, of the Philosophers, going right back to the Greeks, they said, we make progress in our understanding when you're able to reconcile two views which appear independently correct but in conflict with each other.
1: So the right is, approves of the capitalism. But disapproves of the taxation. The left wants to redistribute, but is is uh, uh, disapproving of the of the capitalist impulse. And you wanted to bring them together and say that it, it, they work together. These that,
0: that that's exactly right. So what um, what this circulatory paradigm lets me do is say, okay, now I can agree with Adam Smith. Adam Smith said the engine of economic growth is that we're all trying to do better for ourselves. I'm just twisting it a little bit and saying, we're all trying to do better than each other. But basically, this model agrees with Adam Smith. But then, at the other end of the spectrum, I'm saying, actually, this model also agrees with Karl Marx. This model can accept that capitalism naturally pushes wealth up to the top of the pyramid. And, uh, as Marx said, that will then effectively stagnate the economy. You agree with everybody.
1: You're a social democrat.
0: Um, (laughs) It's actually, um, it is an explanation of why centrist policies work, which they do.
1: Now, all of that said, um, Friedrich Hayek would have said early, early in the last century, he said uh, something about uh, if you, what a democracy does is it it gets, uh, it gives the ordinary people the power to make governments do things and the governments then spend money. To to uh, satisfy the needs of or the wants of the of the the, the lower strata mm-hmm. of the pyramid, and Hayek thought that was a bad thing. Y- you're saying that's a good thing, but uh, I, that can lead us on to actually uh, the the present situation, which is that governments have borrowed so much money to do that in in response. And and is is that not where the the biggest problem is?
0: Um, it's complicated. What's really I think happened here is we had the circulatory system working relatively well. Capitalism was functioning quite well and then there was the progressive taxation which was circulating the money back down to the base of the pyramid. Then we had a few shocks to the global economy. Basically, we had a sudden increase in the working population of the world of two or three billion people when we suddenly took down the Iron Curtain, and China joined the global economy. Suddenly, there was an influx of very cheap workers. And that, um, that depressed the wages of Western workers. And governments effectively tried to supplement the spending power of the workers by encouraging them to borrow more and more money. So central banks, in my view, and this is actually coming back to the the first book more than the second book, but um, central banks misunderstood what was happening when inflation started to fall when China joined the, the world economy. They thought that was bad inflation, that was a sort of after 1929 flavor of inflation, but it wasn't. It wasn't a demand shock inflation, it was a supply shock inflation, very, very different. And the central banks tried to counter this by encouraging everybody to get sort of up to their ears in debt. If you overlay on top of that normal private sector an enormous amount of private debt, which is basically the bottom of society becoming indebted to the top of society, what that means is that a big portion of the income Of the workers at the bottom goes to paying interest costs to those at the top so they lose their spending power the economy slows down the people at the top get richer and richer the people at the bottom don't have the spending power and then we get into this strange situation which we're in now which is governments keep looking at the companies that have got all of the money and going why aren't you investing? Why is the economy stalled when you've got all of this money you can clearly afford to invest? And the companies are basically saying, yes, we can afford to invest, but our customers have got no money. So it's not worth investing. So
1: Our governments have constantly misunderstood the, the, the relation between supply and demand. I mean, it, it, this all sounds a, a little bit rarefied, although I think it's very clear. But you, you, you in your book, you, you, you bring it... A, 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 on occasion, to specific things like the uh, the buy to let scheme, yes. this, this business of the the government saying, "Well, we need to get people on the housing market, so we'll we'll let them have a bit of money to help them get there." But the problem is not the supply of people who want to buy a house. The problem is the supply of houses for them. Yes. Demand is there, but supply isn't. And this is this the, the government's constantly making this error.
0: Yes, and this is. Um Again, this comes back to, I think, a very, very fundamental flaw in economic thinking. Most economic theory completely misses the banking sector, completely misses the credit sector. If you look at neoclassical economics, it's really got nothing to say about money or debt. There's no role in it. So, as far as they're concerned, if you can stimulate the economy by encouraging debt, no problem, because debt isn't in their model. Whereas when you look at the Austrians, they realize that if you keep pumping debt into the system, you will create these problems. So this circulatory model allows you to integrate their banking analysis in there. And this is um, what I wanted to make clear at the end of the book, was if you look at so many elements of government policy over the last three decades... If you drill down into them, there's so many of them are about trying to engineer higher levels of debt in society, lower interest rates, student loans, buy-to-let, help-to-buy, uh, the public-private finance initiatives. Um, it's all about trying to engineer debt into the system, um, which is which has created a polarized society It's created a society with structurally low growth. And, perversely, it's actually now creating the deficits, the government deficits, because the governments have no option now other than to start borrowing in order to try to supplement demand themselves. So, uh, uh, debt is, if you like, I'll use a strong word, it's the cancer in the system.
1: Okay, George, I'm going to change your name to Gideon. You're now Chancellor. Finally, what are we going to do?
0: Well... Um, And and this is, again, I I wanted to end the book on an optimistic note because uh, I think the problems are tractable. But you have to address, you have to first understand where the problems lie, debt being a key one. Then you have to think about how to fix it. Now, what we're doing with monetary policy at the moment is the central banks are printing money to buy assets, the assets are owned by the people at the top of the social pyramid who are already rich enough already have an excess of money um which
1: true doubt blood
0: yes which they cannot uh find any useful useful so let's as a first cut let's change the location of where this money from the central bank's going let's stop doing what's called monetary stimulus which is trying to uh, inflate the asset prices that are owned by those at the top, and let's switch to old-fashioned Keynesian stimulus. I
1: said that when this all started. I said instead of quantitative easing, let's just bring forward next year's pension
0: rise. Well, Because pensioners spend their money. Well, we could do that, or fund a house-building program. That will employ people. It will drive down the price of houses, which is what's necessary, and that will then... Put spending power into the bottom of the pyramid both through employment and because the cost of the housing will be lower and that will create real economic activity and this is actually um, this is just pure old-fashioned Keynesianism so first step redirect what the central bank is supporting they need to support the bottom of the pyramid not the top the second step is Get away from all of these policies that are trying to ramp up the debt level in the private sector. Um, student loans, you probably notice in there, that's one of my biggest. It's one of your bugbears, really is. Student loans act as a uh, regressive taxation. They increase the tax on uh, young people who are trying to get on the housing ladder, trying to start families, things like that. It's a terrible social structure. And as
1: we've learned recently, they never get paid back anyway.
0: Yes, exactly. So... Um, student loans, we shouldn't be doing that. Um, the, The next step is we do have to recognize that there needs to be a balance between the, as I describe it, the bicep and the tricep. The bicep being the capitalist sector and the tricep being the state sector. They need to be in balance, in opposition. At the moment, the wealth polarizing force of the private sector is too strong largely because of the debt. So we need to increase how progressive the taxation system is, which means we need to be cutting tax on those at the bottom of the social pyramid and we need to be increasing tax on those on the top. And the easy way to do that is we should be pushing up tax on things like uh, interest, rent, corporate profits. So we should be taxing the money earned by capital a little bit more heavily, and using that to reduce the tax burden at the top. So if we if we organize things in the right way so that we, we switch from monetary stimulus to Keynesian stimulus, we rebalance the burden of taxation a little bit, and I don't think it has to be a huge amount, but it, it does need to be done, um, and then we just look at all of these government policies that are trying to ramp debt into the system and stop them, then I think we can engineer our way out of this
1: George thank you very much the book is Money Blood and Revolution by George Cooper it's £18.99 and it's published by Harriman House George thank you
0: thank you Tim that was the books podcast with Tim Hague the books podcast is produced by Green Shoot you can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green